0: I think I I want to say uh, from the beginning of this message, by the end of this message, my goal, I always like it when people tell what the goal is. My goal is that you'll leave this place understanding, not just with your head, but with with your heart, the deep love that God has for you. The deep, abiding love that God has for you. And then that will cause you... To be a better lover. So that's where we're going. And so, uh, and it's going to be a little difficult getting there. There's some difficulty involved in this. There's some truth that we're going to have to come to about ourselves as we see how much God loves us. We're going to need a picture. And uh, I'm going to start with the, this picture my own picture. Many years ago, when uh, my wife and I were dating, I wanted her to know just how much I really loved her. So I decided to give her a picture of my love, and, and I think I did pretty well. Uh, let me just put it that way. I gave her a red rose to picture the passion of my love. I gave her a white rose to picture the purity of my love, and a, a glass rose to picture the permanence of my love for her. You know, I was I was still a teenager, and I could come up with three P's to picture my pic, passion, purity, and permanence of this love. Not bad. It was my first sermon, maybe of, of love. I don't know. And Christina definitely got the picture. Uh, I, she married me. Way to go! Uh, as a people, we need pictures. We need pictures to help us understand emotional concepts and feelings, things of the matters of the heart. We can say the words, we can hear the words, I love you, but pictures can help us uh, uh, understand what those words really mean, how the depth of those words, they can help us see just how strong and deep and lasting those emotions are. And that's what we find in our passage for today. In the book of Hosea, uh, chapters 1 through 3, if you are following along, last week I said I was going to be preaching from Amos. But I changed my mind, so I can do that. Hosea, like Amos, though, is one of the Old Testament's 12 minor prophets. Uh, maybe Joel and Obadiah and Micah and Habakkuk and those guys, those, those hard-to-remember guys, the ones you can't really find in your Bible sometimes. Uh, now, they're not minor because their messages are less than other parts of the Bible. They're minor because their books are shorter. They're smaller books uh, compared to the the four major prophets, we call them, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and we'll look at some of those in weeks to come. But Hosea was the last prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember the kingdom after Solomon split, Israel, ten tribes, uh, Judah, Benjamin, two tribes in the south. And Hosea prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel at a time of great prosperity Uh, Great peace, even. But it was also a time of moral decay, a time of idolatry. The people of Israel were forsaking their God, the the one true God, and worshiping and serving other gods. And in 722 B.C., this time of peace and prosperity that the northern kingdom was enjoying came to an end. The northern kingdom of Israel fell in in war to the uh, Assyrian Empire. So Hosea is prophesying to the northern kingdom right up to this fall, right up to this time when uh, Assyria comes and takes over. And in the midst of Israel's idolatry and moral depravity, Hosea, God through Hosea, gives an amazing picture. It's a a living parable of God's deep love for Israel. So let's look at Hosea, uh, what I've called the, the, the greatest picture of God's love in the Old Testament. Now, this love, this story, this parable begins, like many love stories, it begins with a wedding. We love weddings. I'm looking forward to my son and future daughter-in-law getting married next month. We're going to have a wedding. It's going to be nice. But this isn't your typical wedding. The one in Hosea, not theirs. I don't know how to... <laughs> Hosea's is. Because the bride is not your typical bride. So the first thing that's going to be pictured here is not going to be comfortable uh, the first thing is is that God is, is pictured through Hosea, and this bride is God is forsaken by those He loves. In Hosea chapter one verse two, we read. Now the sermon's going to start from here. It's going to get a little PG thirteen. Okay, we're going to use some words that we don't often hear in church, but they're right here in the Bible, so I feel okay with that. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, "Go, take to yourself." A wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by the forsaking by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam. God calls Hosea to marry a wife of whoredom. The the NIV calls it her an adulterous wife. The NASB a wife of harlotry. But I'm going to stick with this whoredom because uh, that word I think is the most impactful for us today it means and it means exactly what you would think it means it refers to an adulteress a prostitute a whore a woman who gives herself sexually to men she's not married to so hosea marries gomer and the worst thing about gomer isn't her name gomer is not a nice name Surprise, surprise, surprise. Oh, if you got that joke, you're my age. If you didn't, just move on. And her marriage to Hosea uh, uh, doesn't cure her whoredom. Gomer will forsake her husband and, and, and have sex with other men. And Gomer is a picture, she's a symbol, a, a real life. I mean, this isn't, a, this isn't a, a just a made up story, this is a true story. But she's a picture, a symbol of the land that commits great whoredom. The land, the people of Israel who forsake the Lord. God is saying that being the God of Israel is like being married to a whore. I've called them to myself. I've made them my people. I've poured out my love unto them. I promised, I've promised to be their God. I've promised to uh, metaphorically marry them the people of Israel, and they forsake, they've forsaken me. They've metaphorically left me and, and, and joined themselves with other gods. That's the picture that God wants us to see in this book. So, they, so Gomer, the physical whore, pictures the people of Israel who are spiritual whores. And brace yourself, she pictures us as well. This isn't just a picture of God's people in Hosea's day. It's a picture of God's people throughout history. So you might ask a a pastor, are you calling me a whore? And I would say, no, not me. But God's Word does. James, writing to Christians, says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James says to God's people, this is New Testament, by the way, after Jesus has died our sins, if you are a friend of the world, God's people, if you put the things of the world before the things of God, if you at any point forsake God for the things uh, this world has to offer, then you are in that moment God's enemy. You're an adulterous people. Adulterous, same meaning as, as whoredom. Whenever we put anything before the Lord, we are an adulterous people. Spiritual whores. Like Israel, we Christians, uh, we follow after other gods, not the same gods, not Baal that we'll talk about in a minute. Gods of our world, gods of pride and materialism, gods of selfishness and greed, gods of lust and anger, gods of entertainment and, and mindless distraction, gods of this world that we forsake our heavenly Father to pursue. We sang about it this morning. Chad, uh, thank you so much for your your leading us, preparing us this morning. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's, It's ridiculous that we do it, but we do it all the time. And Gomer is a picture of Israel and a picture of us. That we are prone to what God, not me, calls whoredom, spiritual adultery. We forsake the Lord, we forsake our Creator, the One who loves us enough to to call us into relationship with Him, the One who loves us enough to make us his, His bride. We forsake Him, and we join ourselves to unholy things, to other gods, to the things of this world. And we have to understand, first, that there are consequences to this. There are consequences to forsaking the Lord God of heaven and earth. There are consequences to spiritual adultery. We see this clearly in Hosea. We see that God punishes those He loves. It's our second point. In Hosea, God says to Israel, I'm going to punish you for your whoredom. You're my people, I love you, but I cannot allow you to continue down this path. Down this path of spiritual adultery. We need to understand that, that, that God's punishment, even God's punishment of His people, comes from a place of love for them. He loves them, He loves us enough not to let us continue to destroy ourselves by following after other gods. Gods that are not only false, not real, but gods who lead us into sinful, destructive Practices, for example, in Israel, the, the god uh, Baal main false worship uh, during this time that Israel went after. Remember, two weeks ago, uh, Tom preached about Elijah's the prophet Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It was good. It was good. God God wiped him out. Baal had, uh, uh, was a god of, of nature and of fertility. And the worship of Baal involved performance of magic rituals and occult practices, many of which included sexual things. Sacred prostitution was part of Baal worship. And this caused the people of Israel to continue down this downward spiral of moral depravity, of spiritual decay. So God in love will put a stop to it Through the punishment of his people. And God pictures the punishment that that will come upon Israel through the life of Hosea. Specifically, in the names of Hosea's three children. Every name points to a punishment that will be received by Israel for their spiritual adultery. At the end of verse 3, Hosea chapter 1 we read, And she, Gomer, conceived and bore him Hosea a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, what does does that all mean? God tells Hosea to to name his firstborn child Jezreel. And By the way, we're not even sure if these children uh, are Hosea's. They could be some other man's. And God will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. So what's that mean? Jezreel is the name of a city where a guy named Jehu went and he usurped, he took power, took the throne of Israel by slaughtering King Ahab. Maybe you've heard, remember King Ahab. The Lord had actually commanded Jehu. He said, Jehu, I want you to go and uh, take care of King Ahab because Ahab was totally evil. But Jehu went overboard. Jehu not only killed Ahab, but he, got, uh, he killed anyone who was affiliated with Ahab. He slaughtered any other prospective kings and their families. It was, a, it was a bloodbath in the valley of Jezreel. So God says, name your child this bloodbath, this place of uh, bloodshed, this place of destruction and death. The place of great and awful sin and blood and death. I would, uh, it would be like an American naming one of their children Twin Towers. All the imagery that that brings up in your mind. The death and destruction. The name Jezreel caused the people of Israel to think of death and bloodshed. So Hosea's first child, Jezreel, is a reminder, death, bloodshed. And it's a pointer to what is coming. God is saying, death and bloodshed is coming to Israel. I will put an end to the kingdom, to the house of Israel. And he does. Remember Hosea, last prophet before the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrian empire, 722 BC. So child number one, Jezreel. Then in verse six, speaking of Gomer, we read, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Hosea, call her name, no mercy. If you're the, e, the ESV that I'm reading from just says "no mercy." Other versions give the, the Hebrew word "lo ru, ma, ha "lo ru, ha, ma Sorry, get confused. Uh, so that means just, just just means no mercy. For I will, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah and will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle. Or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. So God will remove His mercy. God's going to. Resu- He's been having mercy. If if, you're, uh, if your if life is going okay, it's because God has is having mercy on you in this world. And God says uh, the King Northern Kingdom they've been doing okay, peace, prosperity, but they're falling into moral decay, spiritual depravity, idolatry. So I'm removing my mercy from them. No mercy. He will not save them from what's coming against them. He will not deliver them from the Assyrian empire. He will have her show mercy to the house of Judah. His mercy doesn't end. He's going to show Judah. And and Judah for a time will be saved from their enemies. So child number one, Jezreel, death and bloodshed, punishment is coming. Child number two, no mercy for Israel when that punishment comes. And there's one more kid. Verse 8, Hosea chapter 1. When she had weaned, she, Gomer, had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, lo me. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's, that's tough. That's tough. This is the worst news, the worst punishment of all. Israel actually prided themselves on being the chosen people of God. Even in their idolatry, even as they worshiped the Baals, they also syncretized it. They put it together and they claimed to be this people of the the one true God. God over and over says to them throughout Scripture, you are my people and I'll be your God. They're called to, to be set apart as God's people. They're called to represent God to the world. But here in Hosea, God says, no more. I'm done. Because of Israel's spiritual adultery, <coughs> because they had forsaken their God, God says a day of punishment, a day of judgment is coming. Jezreel, a day of death and bloodshed. Lo, a me, a day, a day of uh, no mercy. No. A day of no mercy and a day that God would say, I'm no longer your God. You are not my people. And we need to understand that, that like He punishes His people Israel, God will punish you and He will punish me if we forsake Him. Especially if we forsake Him over an extended period of time. If we follow after other gods. If we claim to be Christians, if we claim to be representatives of God, of Jesus Christ in this world, but we live as, just as those who live in the world We live for the gods of this world. We too will experience God's loving punishment. The author of Hebrews writes, For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. What that discipline looks like in each one of our lives will be different. He may bring death and bloodshed into our lives. He may for a time remove His mercy and allow us to experience the consequences of our sin. He may for a time remove His presence, allow us to experience life without God. It's been my experience, personal, talking to other people, that God's punishment, His discipline is as severe as it needs to be to get me back on the right path to relationship with Him. That's why we're so familiar with this. Sometimes uh, you have to hit rock bottom, right? God allows you to hit rock bottom so that you have no place to look but up to Him. He's sovereign over that. So Hosea and his three kids make it clear that God punishes those He loves. But that's not the end of the story. This series is not titled The History of Punishment. The History of Judgment. It's titled The History of Redemption. And what we see in Hosea is, yes, Israel faces punishment for their spiritual adultery. But the real story of Hosea is this God redeems those he loves. God redeems those. We're getting to the good part now. Even those who forsake him and commit spiritual adultery with other gods. This is pictured right away. Right after the naming of these three kids, right after the judgment, right after blood and death and no mercy and not my people, we read in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Yet, yet, There's going to be this judgment, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the the seas. Going back to the promise he gave to Abraham, I'm not going to violate my promises to Abraham, which can be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Punishment is not the end of the story. Israel Not my people will be redeemed. They will again be children of the living God. And we see this clearly pictured in this relationship, this living parable of Hosea and Gomer. In the first part of Hosea chapter 2, which we don't have time to read through, we get this this mixed picture if you read through it. it's, it's, It's this mixed picture of Israel and Gomer both. Israel forsaking the Lord. She goes after other lovers. She, she seeks satisfaction in other men. And in the midst of all of her whoring, without her even knowing it, God slash Hosea, for a time, is providing for her needs. She's not with him, but he's still providing for her. And she's, I mean, this is just the picture of God, isn't it? The, we've walked away from him, but he's still giving us what we need to get through life. And she's taking what he's provided. And using it to offer sacrifices to Baal. But ultimately, ultimately, she finds herself empty and alone, wanting to return to her husband. She hits rock bottom. And as chapter three begins, Gomer is for sale, either as a prostitute or a slave or both. She's left Hosea, she's been out and about doing her thing, and she finds herself uh, with nothing. And so she has to be a prostitute, a slave. And in Hosea 3.1, the Lord says to Hosea these amazing words. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Go again. Really? The first time was tough enough, wasn't it? God said, go find a a, a wife of whoredom and marry her. Well, now she's... She, I, maybe Hosea thought, well, if I marry her, she'll... Stay straight. She'll straighten up. She didn't. She left, and God says, go again. Love her again. And what is that picture? Go love her again, God says. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I don't really like raisins, but apparently they did. Hosea, pursuing his adulterous wife. Gomer is this picture of the Lord's love for the children of Israel. Even though they run after other gods and love raisin cakes, uh, raisin cakes are probably associated with the worship of Baal, some ritual or practice. God says, I love my people even though they love other gods and they love the things of other gods. Chapter 3, verse 2, Hosea says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer of lethek of barley. Imagine Hosea's pain and his shame. His wife, Gomer, is for sale. The community knows. She's been out and about. And he goes and he buys her back. And notice he uses two different types of currency, silver and barley. Most scholars believe this indicates that Hosea is is scrambling to find the resources to pay for. It's not like being a prophet was like this uh, high-paying job. So buying Gomer back is this painful transaction it 's painful emotionally and it 's painful financially. Buying Gomer back cost Hosea dearly and this is the picture of uh, of what God wants to do for Israel. They would be punished for their spiritual adultery, but they would be brought back. They would be redeemed that 's what redeem means to buy back to purchase back. Look at the end. Uh, the second half of chapter 2. This is after Gomer's, uh, Israel's wanderings. And first comes punishment, verse 13. And I will punish her for for the feasts of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. They will be punished for going after uh, other lovers and forgetting God. But punishment is not the final word. In the next verse, we read something amazing. Remember, we're talking about a whore. Gone after other lovers. Forgetting about the Lord. And verse 14 says, Therefore behold. We might expect to say, Therefore behold, she will be stoned to death. Justice. If you want justice. But instead we read, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to start anew. I'm going to start over, God says. God will bring her back to himself. God will again bless his people. And it continues. Verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. In the past, Israel, like I said, had mixed the worship of God with the worship of of Baal. And God says, I alone will be your husband. Baal will be gone. And there's more, verse 17. For I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and, and the sword and the war of the land, and I will make you lie down in safety." So this is talking about the redemption of it, and there's some debate. When is this, does this take place? Some say it's when they return to the land after exile. Some say it's the millennial kingdom, some say it's referring to the time of Christ, the church. Your guess good as mine. But God will do it. God will not only take back Israel back, but He will transform them. He'll remove the names of the Baals, the false gods from their mouth and, and their memories. And He will again bless them with peace and safety. And there's more. In the Israelite culture, there was a, a betrothal period. We've talked about this. The, you, know, you get engaged and there's this betrothal period is a little different from our engagement time. And it's a period uh, when you're giving gifts to one another. Uh, when you give a dowry from the family of the husband to the family of the wife. But the Israelites had been unfaithful. They were adulteresses. And yet God is going to regive them so to speak in verse 19 he says and i will betroth you to me forever i will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and mercy i will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall be and you shall know the lord god will give them righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness he will give them again himself you will know the lord he will redeem them they will again be in relationship with God. And there's more. You remember in chapter 1, judgment would come to Israel. Jezreel. Bloodshed. No mercy. You are not my people. But now look how God redeems. Verse 21. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they, they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oils, and they shall answer Jezreel. In other words... This is all coming from God. God's giving. He's giving them grain and wine and oil. And when God redeems, his judgments then are, are going to be reversed. He will reverse the judgments of Israel, no, of Jezreel, no death or bloodshed. And then in verse 20, 23, we read, And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he, and, and, and he shall say, You are my God. He will say, uh, He will have mercy on no mercy. He will uh, say to not my people, You are my people. When God redeems, when He pursues and He buys back, He also blesses and He transforms and He reverses His judgments. And this is great news. This is just amazing news, not just for Israel, but for you, for me. This is great news for everyone who's ever committed spiritual adultery against the Lord. And that's all of us. Any sin is is choosing to do what you want. Making yourself God over God. We are all, when it comes down to it, uh, uh, when it comes to our faithfulness to God, we've failed. We've gone after other gods. We've offended the true and holy and righteous and good and loving God. And all of us deserve condemnation, judgment, Eternal punishment. But instead, because of His amazing love, God pursues us. He redeems us. He blesses us. He transforms us. And He reverses His judgments. And there are two questions uh, that should be on everyone's lips at this point. At least in your mind. The first is, why? Why? Why would God redeem a people who betray Him? Why Why does He go back? The people who go after other gods, who put other things before the Lord. Why would God redeem a bunch of whores? And the answer to the question is a mystery. The answer that Scripture gives is simply because He loves His people. The mystery is uh, why He loves such an unlovely, unfaithful people. And I can't answer that question. In my opinion, in my humble opinion, the answer is, is a mystery contained in the depths of who God is beyond our human understanding. He doesn't act like we would think we would act. I don't know why God loves us, but I rejoice that He does. I rejoice that He does. But there is another question that I can't answer, that the Bible answers, and that is how is it possible? For God to redeem such an unfaithful, unholy people. See, the problem is that God is totally holy. Not, Not that God's holiness is a problem. It's our sinfulness, our lack of holiness, our unfaithfulness. That's the problem. So how can a holy God, sinless, pure, set apart, sanctified God, love and bless and transform such an unholy people? Or put in Hosea's terms, how can a holy husband marry a whoring wife? And that brings us to the ultimate picture of love. The greatest picture of love in the New Testament. Or in all of history for that matter. And that picture is Jesus Christ on the cross. It's in Christ. It's through Christ. It's because of Christ's death on the cross that we who are spiritual whores can enter into relationship With a holy husband. Like Hosea bought Gomer back in Christ, God God buys us back at great personal cost. Not with silver, not with barley, but with his own precious blood. Jesus redeems with his blood. Peter chapter. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Our redemption costs God dearly. It cost Him the precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us from all of our adulterous ways. So that on the cross, on the cross, God's holiness is and God's love are joined together. John 3:16. Why did God do that for God so loved the world? That's the only answer we have that He gave His only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God lovingly gave his very own son as a substitute for you and me. And we, those who believe, those who trust in Him, receive the benefits. We' are redeemed. We don't perish. We have eternal life. But it's even more than that. Jesus redeems with his own blood, and Jesus sanctifies his bride. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, 25 through 27. Usually, this is a, a wedding thing, but let's look at Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, good. As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When Christ gave Himself up for the church for those who believe, He accomplished the mighty work of sanctifying His bride. He set us apart. He set us apart for a relationship with a holy God, making us clean without spot or wrinkle. Holy and without blemish. Again, in, in Hosea's terms, He took a whore and made her a virgin bride. He bought us back. He redeemed us with His precious blood. And He sanctified. He made us clean that we might be His holy bride. And this is only possible because Jesus was 100 percent faithful. Jesus never sinned against God. He never in any way committed spiritual adultery. But for our sake, he took our place and received the punishment we deserved. Jesus receives our punishment. That's our, our final point for today. Jesus, yes, We'll receive earthly punishment. We talked about that. Earthly discipline designed to keep us from forsaking the Lord. But each and every one of us deserves eternal punishment for our sinful, adulterous ways. We've forsaken the Lord God. We've forsaken our Creator and gone after false gods. And Jesus, for our good and for God's glory, takes the punishment we deserve upon Himself. Do you remember the names of Hosea's children? How they pictured the punishment that would that come to those who were unfaithful to God. Jesus took this punishment, those punishments upon himself. First Jezreel, a place of death and bloodshed. Punishment came to Jesus as he on the cross died and shed his blood for you and me. Jesus' precious blood takes the place of our blood. For us, Jesus became this place of death and bloodshed. Second, no mercy. We deserve no mercy, and Jesus is given no mercy. There's no deliverance for Jesus. There's no rescue. There's no coming uh, at the last moment and taking Jesus off the cross. Remember, Jesus asked for mercy even. He said in in Matthew 26-39, in the Garden of Gethsemane, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass, the cup of the cross, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup doesn't pass. Jesus receives no mercy. And finally, not my people. Jesus is cut off from the Father. In the darkest hour, the dark, The darkness pervaded the entire earth as Jesus hung on the cross. Matthew 27, 46 says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this moment, at this moment, our sin, your sin and mine, our unfaithfulness, our spiritual adultery is placed upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus is forsaken by His Father. For the first time in eternity, Christ is not in relationship with God. He's cut off from His Father for our sake, for the sake of those He loves. And because of that, Peter writes about us. 1 Peter 2.10 Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus was cut off in our place so that we might so that we are now the people of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He was perfectly faithful in every way, but He became sin. He He became the whore that we really are. He took our sins upon Himself and He carried them to the cross and He was punished. And, and he, he shed His blood and He received no mercy and He was cut off for his, from His Father all for our sake, for your sake and mine. That's love beyond measure. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we, we are called to communicate to our community and to our world that Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross is history's greatest picture of God's love for His people. And that should impact our lives. We should naturally be responding to God's love. Knowing the extent of God's love for us. Knowing the lengths He went. The cost to redeem us. Knowing that even though we are prone to wander, prone to leave the One who loves us, Knowing that even though we are spiritual adulterers and adulteresses, knowing that while we were spiritual whores, God demonstrated His love for us by sending His Son to die in our place. He didn't wait for us to to become pure. He sent His Son while we were impure. That Jesus received the punishment we we deserve. That by Jesus' blood, we can be redeemed. And that as Jesus' bride, we are sanctified. Knowing all of this has to produce a response in our life. And I believe the logical and biblical response to God's love for us is simply to love in return. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4, 19, we love because He first loved us. Because God loves us, We have the power and the ability to love. And who do we love? Well, Jesus says uh, our love should be directed in two ways, two directions. First, horizontally, the greatest commandment, Jesus said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. Respond to God's love for you by loving him with everything you are. With your emotions, your feelings, your heart, your soul, with your mind, your thinking and your will, with your strength, your actions, what you do in love, give yourself completely to him. And then based on this love for his love for you, you can then go vertical. That's horizontal love between you and God. And then you can you can take it vertical. You can obey the second greatest commandment. Jesus said, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Respond to God's love for you by, by first loving and uh, loving Him, and second, by loving your neighbor. Loving other people. Both of these are biblical because they're commands from the Bible. And they're logical as well because if, if you, if we... Spiritual whores, spiritual adulterers are privileged to receive the love. We're a gomer, and God has bought us back. If we're privileged to receive God's love again, then how can we ever withhold our love from God or from those God has created? So I would encourage you this week, this month, this year, maybe maybe on a daily basis, spend time meditating on God's love for you. Picture God's love for you. Go back to Hosea. Read it again and again. Think about who you are. Your spiritual adultery. Your sin. Think about what you deserve. Eternal punishment. Eternal separation from God. No mercy. Death and bloodshed. And think about the grace and love and mercy of God that gives you uh, instead forgiveness, love, redemption. Allow the reality of God's love to be embedded deep within your soul. Live with his love in your heart daily and allow the reality of his love to transform you into a lover, a lover of God and a lover of people. Would you, would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we pray, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we would be lost lost without it. We would be eternally condemned and lost without Your love, the love that sent Your Son to die in our place, to buy us back, to redeem us. Lord, we acknowledge our sin, our spiritual adultery, our running from You, our forgetting You, not just in the past, but, but even yesterday, even today, Lord. We acknowledge that and we ask for Your forgiveness and Your grace and Your mercy to cover that. We thank you for Jesus, his his death on the cross, Lord. And we ask that we would respond to to the love you have for us by becoming people who love you, who give our lives to you, who follow you, who obey you, who trust in you, who think about you, who live for you, Lord, that we would would be that kind of people and then that would extend to those around us, that we would love people that are different than us, people that are are not like us, people that, that we struggle with, people that are unlovely, Lord, because we're unlovely. Lord, give us your power to be lovers. In Christ's name, amen.